Hi, my name is Dr. Patricia Morogami. Welcome to your next best self. I know you might be wondering, who's this Dr. Patricia Morogami? Well, I'm a leadership catalyst, a leadership coach, an educator on matters to do with life, leadership, love, and legacy. And I hope that as you start to listen in and practice some of the leadership insights we'll be sharing here, you'll begin to see your next best self. Such an exciting uh, moment for us to be having this conversation with Busi. And I just want to welcome all of you to honor yourself and be so present for the next 60 minutes. You know, the gift of time is something we take for granted and the gift of learning and investing and reflecting. And so today I am just about to introduce Vusi Tembekwayo, who's actually going to be one of our keynote speakers at the Your Next Best Self in South Africa, August 18th and 19th. My name is Dr. Patricia Morogami. I'm your host, your leadership catalyst, and I'm the one who's passionate about you becoming your next best self, wherever you're all logging in from. So let me introduce Vusi. Vusi, welcome. I'm excited for us to be having this fireside chat digitally. And I'd like to introduce you because your introduction actually sheds quite a bit of light on the conversation we'll be having today. Vusi Tembekwayo is a chair investment committee at Impact Investment Fund Managers, Johannesburg. He's a global business speaker, private equity managing partner at Watermark Africa, CEO of Pan-African Impact Investment Firm, My Growth Fund Venture Capital, and convener of leading research boutique IC Knowledge Bureau. Vusi is an author. His debut book, The Magna Carta of Exponential, was launched in Barcelona, Spain in 2017. And you know, any of you who are authors will know that if you sell a thousand copies on the day of the launch, that's incredible. But Vusi actually sold 6,000 copies on the day of his launch. And his follow-up book, Vusi, Lessons from the Black Dragons, is a multi-award bestseller available on Audible and Kindle. One of the things that stood out for me as I was praying, reflecting, thinking about the speakers who will honor us this August was that they live what it is that they're speaking about. And I was fascinated to find that Vusi started public speaking at the age of 17, where he was ranked number one, and then went ahead to receive third place in the world at the English Speaking Union International Competition. So he delivered his first professional talk in 2002, and over the past 15 years and counting, he continues to grace the global stage, the African stage, with his humor, charisma, and thought-provoking content. He's been a catalyst for change in businesses across the globe um, through expertise in strategy, leadership, and sales. And one of the things that I find fascinating is his mission to change the African narrative by challenging the mindset and approach towards achieving economic freedom. This is something that we have in common because the work that we do at Breakthrough Leadership Transformation and Rise is about helping people become their next best self, which really is challenging that heart set, soul set, and mindset to break through the issues and the challenges that hold us back and to help us rise. So without further ado, join me in welcoming Vusi Tembekwayo as we have this conversation this evening. Hey, Doc. Welcome. You know, it's so interesting. You know, I was just thinking to myself, age 17, what was I doing? <laughs> Speaking is something that people fear even more than death. You know that, I know, 
right? Yes. A lot of people really struggle with figuring out their careers. And so what made you venture into what I think is called a portfolio career, which is what you have, where you're using your talents and strengths to lift the human race based on the issues and problems you're helping them solve. How did you just venture into this? Um, A bit of design, a bit of just God's divine intervention. Um, I was lucky to, to kind of start public speaking as something that I was just gifted when I was younger. And as I developed and got older, it became the thing that was my signature in everything I did. So, you know, when I, when I was in corporate finance, for instance, I learned all of the necessary necessaries to work in corporate finance, but I was infinitely more capable than the rest of my peers at presenting our thoughts and ideas to executives in the boardroom. So over time, it became the thing that differentiated me. Um, and, and, and then, you know, as I got older, I decided that it's the thing that I really wanted to focus my time on. You know, what I find interesting is that we're living now in a time where when you have different gifts and talents, it's actually an asset. I don't know about you, but for me, the fact that I could do a number of things seems to be a liability more than an asset. You know, the old adage, rolling uh, stone gathers no moss. You know, the fact that you know everything and a little of nothing kind of thing. So how did you actually determine your career path? I love the fact that you started with the fact that God inspired you. But how have you then, you know, just evolved? Because that was not, and here we are. I mean, to be clear, it's something I used to struggle with. And I think a lot of us who are multi-talented and, you know, um, very capable fall into this trap. You know, it's the, it's the child in school who, it's interesting, right? If you think about it, when you're in school, if you're talented academically and then you're talented culturally, so you do performing arts, uh, theater, poetry, uh, the dramatic arts, public speaking, debating, and then you're also talented in the sports field, that's something that's rewarded in school. It's something that, uh, that all schools want that kind of very capable all-rounder. They'll make you, you know, head prefect or something like this if you are that capable. When you get into the real world, it actually works against you because your your being that capable opens up your your option set and unless you have advice um that allows you to refine those options it becomes very difficult for you to choose a path of what to do i'm sure there's some people listening who face that right so so um it it becomes very difficult For, for me i struggled with it in the early days i i similar to you i was kind of everywhere and tested and tried everything. And also because I'm smart, um, smarter than the average person, you pick things up very quickly, you learn very quickly, you adapt and adopt very quickly, you acclimatize to spaces and environments very quickly, you internalize information very quickly, and you're able to execute on the information that you've internalized, et cetera, et cetera. So you're doing all of these things so fast that it is not inconceivable that uh, you find yourself in a space where you have allowed your capabilities to lead you to the path that is not your calling, right? Um, that's actually more, more common than most people. There are a lot of people out there who are very good engineers, but they hate engineering. They're very good mathematicians, but they hate math. They're you know, very good statisticians, but they hate stats. 
um, because we, whereas you've got the capability, it's not net, it's not the place that you've been called to serve at. That idea of called to serve at is, is something that a lot of people struggle with. And I remember the conversation we had um, just a couple of weeks ago where I really believe that every person has a problem that has their name on it. I love that. And that's the calling. And, and I think the, the world is so noisy and there are so many voices that are trying to push people in different directions. You talked about being advised and, and being humble enough because I think one of the challenges with you know, multi-potentialites and those who are able to do many things is sometimes we can get into the trap of intellectual arrogance where, you know, in a sense, we don't know who to listen to and we're not even ready to listen. So as you determined and you sought clarity, what was your journey like in terms of finding the truth tellers who are truly interested in you growing and in you finding your calling? Mm, very difficult. That is very, very difficult. Uh, over the years, I've found that in my experience, it's been my experience that most of the people who position themselves as truth tellers in your life and as agents of growth for your life only do that to the extent that it benefits them. So whereas they have something that they can benefit from you, whether it's your skills, your capabilities, um, your company, um, your talents, or, you know, or just the, or the association with you, um, they, it's been my experience that a lot of the people who position themselves as I am doing this with you and for you are actually more interested in, in doing it for themselves. It, it really is about how it makes them feel. Um, so what, what have I learned about that? I think, you know, there are probably two universal truisms that I've learned over time. The first universal truism is that the person who is least acclimated to the journey you have walked often offers the best advice. So it's not the person with whom you share a background or a cultural perspective or uh, you grew up in a similar type of way or you see the world in similar ways. It's often not that person. It's the person who is, you know, who comes from a completely different background, who relates to you in very little ways in terms of how they have experienced the world. That will give you that'll give you just the most sober, candid piece of advice in in conversation and in discussion with them. That's been my experience. Um, and that's the first universal uh, universal truism. A second universal truism has been that um, every every time I have thought a problem was urgent, it was it wasn't. Um, I think a lot of us kind of naturally uh, panic in dealing with issues and problems. One of the things you learn when you watch leaders who have been tested by time is they have this incredible ability not to panic, sometimes to the point where those they lead feel frustrated at how the leaders are responding. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a certain temperament and a certain temperance that the leader has built over time, the ability to calm the, the stormy waters, peace, be still, quite literally. So, so, so in walking my journey, I've learned that as I've gotten older, things that I thought at some point were really important and really urgent just weren't. They, they were things that happened. They were part of life and you deal with it and you move on. But they, in my mind, I made them bigger than they are. You know, they say um, some people grow older with wisdom and others age comes on its own, you know? <laughs> And so the fact that you're able to really think about these things in the context of time, I know some of the people who are listening today are asking themselves, 
how do you seek clarity in a world that's so noisy to figure out your next step, just the next step? Because I think the challenge with having multiple options, most people freeze and they have no idea how am I going to take the next step and the next step and the next step. But that freezing is part of the problem. And so how do they seek the clarity to take that first step, especially where you're in a career or in a space where you know this is not working. This is not my calling. This is not the problem I'm solving, but it's paying the bills. And so I'm kind of stuck in there. And I find a lot of people are in that space. Yeah. So first, I think that it's important for us to differentiate our work from our calling. I think that, you know, we live in this um, social media era today where everybody wants to post the 60 second video, you know, with the, with the, the text that's overlaid and the music in the background, and they want to say something, you know, very, very deep, et cetera, et cetera. And in, in that world, there's this idea that the work you do is your calling on earth. Those are, those are not the same things. Um, there is the work we must do, and there is our calling on earth, what we have been called to do. Sometimes those are the same things. But often, and for most people, they are not. And it really is about finding for yourself what it is that is your calling and feeding that which might be. So it's not implausible that you're a day trader in an investment bank or an accountant in an audit firm by week and you're a leader of a parish by weekend. It's not implausible because there are the things that we do as our work and there are the things that we do as our calling. I think for, as a believer, I think what God calls on us to do is to honor him in, in both. That where you do your work, you are a reflection of how God is manifesting that environment. And that when you operate in your space of calling, you are a reflection of how God is made manifest in that environment. So in my mind, it really is just about if those two things, as is the case with me, can be the same, then great. If they're not the same, you don't beat yourself up about it but you, you, you find the way to balance the work you must do from the work you are called to do. I like that differentiation. There are too many people who are thinking it's either or and mm. not both. So mm. in a sense, we liberated them today. Mm. And I, I think even in times where the possibilities are so many more of solving that problem that has your name on it <laughs> in a small way in a small way and then continuously growing and in so doing, shining your light on others. So Fusi, you know, when I listen to you and I listen to your podcast, Ideas That Matter, there are a couple of um, podcasts that for me are top ranking. And um, I'm interested in figuring out and you sharing what is the biggest challenge that you have faced, even as you navigated uh, your leadership journey and how did you overcome it? There are those who say that, uh, you know, uh, God, he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called, and that he tests most his strongest warriors. And sometimes I just want to send God an SMS going, listen, dude, I passed. No more tests. Um, so, I mean, there have been several. There have been several challenges. And, but all of, my, all of my challenges have centered around the same theme, which I expect even for the people, you know, fishbowling into this conversation that most of their challenges have centered around the same theme. I think in our journey on earth, 90% of our problems 
and I use that number hyperbolously, not specifically, is are people that relate to this, are, are problems that relate to the same thing. If you really think about it, the things that cause us stress and the things that cause us uh, grief, the things that give us joy and the things that, that bring us happiness tend to all revolve around the same thing, the quintessential human question, which is how do I coexist with other people? So I, over the years, the challenges I've faced have almost always been people-centered, whether it's around how do I inspire, how do I lead, how do I correct, how do I set boundaries, um, how do I build authentic relationships um, when necessary, how do I terminate relationships, um, how do I manage expectations, how do I deliver, and all of those, they, they come down to our ability to coexist with other human beings, right? So, so, and I, and I know that's that's not a specific answer to your question, but it is to say that almost all the challenges I have faced over the years have revolved and centered on the central question about people. And at different stages, it's been different questions with people. Sometimes, how do I coexist with people who are sociopaths, who are maniacal, who are narcissists, and who? don't see the folly and, and, and the, the malevolence of their ways and their intent. People who are absolutely intent on enforcing themselves on your life, on making their agenda your life's agenda. So there is that sometimes. And then other times it's, you know, of coming to, you know, really incredible, amazing human beings and souls. How do I not treat them like they are the other people? You know, how do I give them the benefit of space and benefit of the doubt? How do I allow them to make errors but grow at the same time? How do I coach, mentor, and train without losing patience? Um, all, all of those are questions that center around people. I think uh, human beings are social creatures, and, and that makes up most of our lives, frankly, is how do we exist in a social construct? I, I absolutely agree with you. I'm thinking about... The, the challenges that we have faced even as we grew the business, we're expanding through Africa. And you know, you're right. It's about people. It's about mm. how we relate. And an interesting one that mm. you raised there is around boundaries, you know, mm. boundaries as you continue to impact, boundaries to ensure you safeguard that light so mm. that the light mm. is, not, is not blown off and all of a sudden you actually can't see your calling. How have you managed that specific area around boundaries? by being a student. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll show you something very quickly. And, and it's interesting you asked that question because this is literally what's sitting on my table to be read right now. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> this guys, these guys are our friends. Town and Townsend. <laughs> I mean, that's like a leadership Bible, isn't it? It's the Bible. It's the Bible. There. And it's all these versions of boundaries of teenagers, boundaries of leaders, but this is the first and the masterpiece. Tell me about it. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, it really comes off the recognition that the ability to draw a line in the sand is not only a, a, a part of life, but it is a necessary part of a healthy life. A lot of us don't have the ability to draw boundaries because we perceive of ourselves to be impolite 
when we do that. You think of yourself as somebody who's doing something wrong when you, you're doing nothing wrong when you draw boundaries. Um, when you say, this is how I, I want to maneuver. But also, you know, for me, the lesson has been that if you, if, if, if you don't understand how to draw boundaries, it's very difficult to leverage the maximum potential of people and for people to leverage your maximum potential. Just because you become so thinly stretched and, and there's massive overlaps between where people are and where you are and what's happening in your life. So, so for me, uh, this book was actually a gift from somebody I mentor and uh, it sat on my desk for probably three years before I opened it. And, uh, and I decided to, to open it. And it, uh, it's, it's an incredible, incredible read. Just the idea of setting boundaries and still being a loving person, letting somebody know that I care, but, you know, but there are limitations um to to that and and how do you do things so that you don't you know when somebody wants your time your energy your love your money how do you show up in a way that is authentic but also in a way that preserves and protects your integrity your individual sovereign integrity um and and for most of us i imagine most people watching this conversation the real challenge with setting boundaries is not the boundaries, it's the guilt that comes with setting them. Absolutely. And learning to, learning to free yourself from the guilt of saying, this is what my boundaries are, this is how I move, and this is how I need you to show up. Otherwise, we're going to have a problem in terms of how we build this relationship going forward. You know, it's fascinating. The other day, someone was telling me how they found their calling, but the challenge is how to leave boundaries because they want to do all these things. They are so energized and engaged. And sometimes the boundaries from what I have seen, even when I'm coaching clients is a boundary also with yourself. Mm. I mean, that's probably the, it, it is without question the, the most important. Um, in the book, they talk about the 10 laws and then they talk about the 10 myths. And one of the laws is the law of responsibility the recognition that you are responsible not only to the world, but also you are responsible to you. Um, and, and you're quite right. That setting those healthy boundaries with yourself is, is uh, something we all, almost all of us find very difficult. Um, what, what I found was interesting, though, was that once I began the process of setting boundaries, it was interesting to see almost how ready people were to adjust to the boundaries that I'd set. It's, it's curious, but it's almost as if the setting of the boundary was a gift to me and them. Um, that as uncomfortable as it was, it gave them the pathway of how we're going to migrate and move out in our relationship. So absent, I want you to picture it this way. So this has been my experience. Absent of boundaries, we're in this like vast field and there are no lines, no markings, and you can stand anywhere, do anything, and say anything. And the minute I put demarcations on the field, I turn it into a soccer pitch or a basketball court. Or in that, all of a sudden, there are rules, there are demarcations, there's designations. And the person who's on the field knows how to behave. The, the striker knows how to behave. The goalkeeper knows how to behave, right? So in my experience, it was that the minute that you set those boundaries with yourself and then you set those boundaries with others, you actually free them because they now have a very finite understanding of, of the block and box that they occupy in your life and how that block and box is going to be made manifest in your life. Listening to you, you've really validated the 
something I believe in that clarity is power. Even when we think it's going to bring discomfort, the clarity on how to operate, how to behave, how to, because of those boundaries makes a very big difference. So Lucy, um, I find that people tend to struggle uh, with failure. And I remember one of your podcasts on the Holland Heroes. That was a, a really profound um, podcast around fallen heroes because first and foremost, we think fallen heroes are those people out there and that fallen hero could be just us right here. And so the idea of failure I have found is something that people struggle with, that they don't want to try because they're afraid, the fear of failure. So what would you advise um, those who are listening in and all of us here? around how to navigate the fear of failure and to challenge themselves to keep going and in a way to rebrand failure. I see failure as a friend. Sometimes it's painful and costly, but rebranding failure as a, as a, you know, a lesson in life, as a class in the school of life, for me has helped me get over failure. I don't know about you when you think about failure and think about fear of failure and how people are held in invisible prisons. How would you help them break through those prisons so that they can really live fully and become truly their next best selves? Well, I think you're right. And, and I think that, um, so first, my, my experience is that most people aren't afraid of failure. It's not the failure that you're afraid of. It's, it's the consequence of the humiliation that might come with that failure. Human beings are social creatures. You're not afraid of failing. If you were afraid of failing, you wouldn't try a recipe for the first time in the privacy of your own home. If you were afraid of failing, you wouldn't take up a hobby that you get to do and go to an art studio and nobody knows who you are. It's not the failure that we're afraid of. It's, it's the, what we perceive as the consequence of humiliation that comes with that failure. And humiliation can only be by public design. It can only be if it happens in public that you are then humiliated. So what a lot of people are afraid of is you'll often hear people say, what will they say if? And in, in that sentence is really what the real failure is. It's, it's they and say, you know, it's these, these, these unknown entities somewhere in the world and their opinions of you. Um, and I think that the, the, lesson, the lesson and the wisdom for us is to recognize that they are going to speak whether you're failing or succeeding, right? So, so there is no satisfying they. They will always speak. They will always have something to say. They are just they. That's who they are, right? Um, and I think that's an, that's an important consideration. The second and equally important consideration is that you have to ask yourself the question, to whom are you supremely accountable? Are you accountable to the people who have opinions? Or are you accountable to the God that put you here and gave a calling upon your life? Because at some point, we have to answer to both of those, right? And the latter is the only one to, to which you must answer, by the way. At some point, you will be called. And, and your creator will ask of you, this is what I called you to do. What did you do? That's it. There's no, for me, that's, that's the question I'm more afraid of answering. What they have to say um, is, is something I'm not really, uh, not as concerned about as I used to be. 
and and admittedly, having said that, it took me a while to get there, right? It, I think all of us are people pleasers, especially if you're an African child. You know, we're, we're raised strangely as African children. We're, we're raised to be really nice and compliant and people pleasers. And, you know, this idea of the community and being of service to the community, you know, Africans have this thing that your success, you know, must benefit more your community than it must you for it to be truly legitimate, we almost frown on individual achievement and individual success. We ask of people who succeed, yes, but how many of these have they done, or et cetera, et cetera. There's this huge communal pressure when you become a success as an African child and an African person in our context that you'd be forgiven for thinking, I, I don't want to succeed at all, or if my, I don't want, I certainly don't want my success to be known. And so, and so even for the people who fear failure, it's that same community that puts pressure on you to become a success so that it gets to benefit. That's the same community that that then wants to be entitled to your success and bash you when things don't go right. To the point where, you know, I must be careful how I say this, but I would even venture to say that they 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 it's almost as if they long for it. They 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 have a they have a salacious appetite waiting for something to go wrong, right? So so it's not the fear of failure, it's the fear of the consequence of failure. And you free yourself by recognizing that failure is probably going to probably going to happen. What you can depend on is your ability to learn through the process. Which is the idea of being a lifelong learner, right? And always being a beginner. Yes. That's right. That idea of people even being afraid of success. And increasingly, I see that being more of what is coming up. And I, and I I also agree that there's a point there around the context that changes when you become successful. What was that like for you? What has that been like for you? What has it continued? Um, yeah, that's difficult. That's difficult. My, my, my hardest learning has been that when you become successful, most people build a relationship with you based on what it is they perceive they will benefit from having the relationship with you, right? Um, and so you you carry this huge burden, massive, massive burden of, of what people think you are and how people think they are entitled to who you are. And there is a target in all our backs, by the way, the more successful you become, whether it's entitled to your body and your, your, your bodily integrity. Uh, you see this often in particular with women. In, in modern society, uh, whether it's entitled to the, your, your finances and your hard work. And you see that with highly successful um, professionals and entrepreneurs and business owners who out of the woodwork, you know, people who have at some point or other been in their lives come out of the woodwork explaining, expecting rather that they are entitled to something because you have achieved it. So you, you learn then as you get older, frankly, that there is just that. There's that baked into the system. You know, I, I'm reflecting on that and just reflecting on my own journey and the journey of a lot of our clients and my friends. And, and I wonder if you were to give advice to your older self, we'll talk about younger self, looking forward, Vusi at um, 80, what would you tell Vusi now? Um, it's going to be okay. Oh. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that's the lesson for all of us. Whatever it is, it will pass. It will be okay. Life moves on, um, um, and you are infinitely capable of handling 
it, whatever it is, first. Second, trust your instinct, trust your gut. There is an instinct and a gut that comes with a particular way of moving in the world. Um, some people call it instinct. Some people call it gut. I call it the God's voice in you. Trust it. When it tells you something about something, a situation, a place, an environment, believe it. And, and, the, and the thing about that voice is it, it doesn't scream. It whispers. But the voice of the world is screaming all the time. You know, the world throws flashy images and constant notifications on your phone. The world is screaming. That voice inside you whispers. And, and, and so you've got to tune your frequency to listen to the, to the whisper of the voice. Um, because what it lacks in volume, it makes up for in substance. You trust your instinct. It's so fascinating. I'm going to show you the book I'm reading, which really ties into exactly what you said. So I'm reading How to Profit from One's Failures. Nice. And, and this is interesting because when I think about 80, one of the things that ties in is it's going to be okay, but also celebrate life despite what is happening. And so now let's look back at giving advice to your younger self. If you were to do over life again, is there anything you do or not do differently? Um, sure, or to do over life. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's several things that I would do differently. Uh, and I think that that's just maturity. Maturity is knowing that there are, there are parts of your life and decisions that you have taken that you look back on and gone, mm, I would have done that differently. I would have handled that situation differently. I would have taken a different set of decisions then. Um, that's that's a part of it, right? That said, I the grace I give myself is knowing that even if it was not by God's design that it happened that way, that you know the God I serve doesn't allow things to happen to me; things happen for me. Mm-hmm. And so everything that's have ever happened, it it propels me to the next, even if at the time I don't see it, but it opens a new door. It closes a door I wasn't supposed to have walked through in the first place sometimes. Um, that goes back to our conversation about being infinitely capable. You often find yourself in rooms where you shouldn't be. And you can be, you, you're mentally and cognitively capable of being in that room, but it's not your place, it's not your calling, it's not your space, it's not your environment. And so it is just about recognizing that you need to move that way. You know, you're absolutely my brother from another mother. Because recently I did an engaged talk and, you know, engage in Kenya, talk about, you know, just sharing stories of vulnerability. And my belief was that life doesn't happen to you, but for you. And so when you say that, it got me thinking about some of the questions we're already receiving from those who are tuning in here. Uh, Sunshine Genga says, how do you bounce back from failure and move away from the seeming trauma of failure? So it's almost like completing the conversation we've just started having around failure and the trauma that comes with it, especially when the humiliation seems to be continuous. And that question really connects with how do you bounce back from a reputational fall from Nyambura Ngama, um, you know, career limited moves. How do you bounce back that resilience to actually deal with the trauma even when it seems to be repeating itself and then rise up from it? Particularly because there are people who will constantly only refer to the time when you fail. So they're, they, in a sense, refuse to give you another chance. What do you think, Lucy? Yeah, I think that, um, so first I think that that happens. 
I don't I don't take for granted that those things may or may not happen. I do think though that if there is a if there is a persistent error that repeats itself, the error isn't the problem. There is something going on there. A deep-seated belief in oneself might be one of them. That's typically the the, the major the major one. And and people think their beliefs is what they know. Your belief is your belief. What you know is what you know, right? And so and so I'll give an example. If you're if you're if the error that you if if the mistake you keep making is you're constantly um, submitting uh, uh, bids for work opportunities late and missing out those work opportunities, then there might be a deeply embedded belief of inadequacy. And that's actually what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the fact that you don't feel adequate um, and you don't feel like you deserve those opportunities. So even when the opportunities are made available to you, you self-destroy those opportunities, right? Before they, they even come, come to, to, to fruition in your life. So, so if there is a persistent thing you're dealing with, you, you need to seek, I would say you need to seek some assistance. Usually the thing is not the thing, it's whatever is feeding that thing. There is a deeply held belief, either a feeling of inadequacy, um, a feeling of lack, a, 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 deep, a deep feeling of, of wanting, a deep feeling of longing, or, of feeling like you don't belong. Um, so so that, that would be, that would be my, my piece of advice there. This shifting of beliefs is deep work, and most people are not ready to do it. So unfortunately, then they continue to perpetuate themselves in that space. What about celebrating failure? Uh, Mike Zule is asking, how, how do you flip this, move away from trauma to actually seeing that this failure changed everything for me, this betrayal, this thing that didn't work actually shifted because I saw it as not something that is holding me back, but something that's setting me free. What's your experience, Lucy? Um. Yeah, but I still struggle with that a little bit. I mean, you're busy reading the book on that now, so maybe you can share some notes with us. I still, I still struggle with that. I don't have a template for that yet. Uh, so, so I, 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 I have one of two kind of models. The first is, to the extent possible, try and take as many mitigating um, steps as I can to ensure that we minimize the risk of failure. Um, and if the failure does happen, to, I, I. I try and, and be as honest and um, honest and reflective as possible about why and own my part in it because I can't change anything that I don't own and then seek to work on the things that I have identified. It's fascinating. Um, you know, I'm going to make reference to this book and, and some work that I've done prior to this when I had some dismal failures. And one of the things is to don't allow failure to surprise you. Because I think the element of surprise um, for those of us who believe, and I know we believe uh, in God, is, is the devil trying to shock you that you're too good to fail. So yes. what's surprise that, is that me? Did I just do that? Did that just happen? Did I lose that? So the idea of not allowing failings to surprise us. But I think another one that I have found interesting is not allowing failings to upset us permanently. So of course they'll upset us, we'll feel bad, but not to allow ourselves to build a home in misery. The third one for me has been not allowing failure to make you feel ashamed. Because what happens is when you allow shame to be the thing, then it gives into secrecy 
And as a result, you're not able to even look for that help you referred to because ah, I can't say this. I can't even talk about this to my spiritual director, my coach, that good friend, that mentor. Mm-mm. I can't be the one saying those things. And I think therein is where the prison really then cups us and keeps us in there. Yeah, you've absolutely nailed it. You've absolutely nailed it. I think a lot of us battle with psychologists, call it our ego. We all battle with, you know, the young people in social media call it your avatar. Mm-hmm. We battle with our, with, our, with our projectile to the world and our reality as we see ourselves and the gap between this projectile to the world and what is our actual lived reality. That's, a, that's for me, that's our ultimate struggle. That's the stuff we really, really struggle with is we're sent out this message to the world, and, but we're here. And, and we, we look in the mirror daily, we see the blemishes, we wake up in the morning before the, make, before the makeup and the hair and all of that is done. So we see that image, but to the world, we send out the perfectly curated version of ourselves. And when the world um, begins to look and peek beyond this projectile, we feel exposed, right? And, and that's, the, that's the shame. The shame comes from feeling exposed, not recognizing that you know, even the, even the people to whom you feel exposed themselves are dealing with their own issues and their own difficulties and they have to make their own decisions. That's so right. Wusi, you said something that I haven't had many gentlemen speak about, so I want to honor you for that, that we are people pleasers. Yeah, most mm. men are not allowed their ego to even say they are people pleasers. First of mm. all, it's a good thing, but there's also an acceptance of, am I really an, an ego pleaser? And so here mm. I have a question from Edel Karausi boy. How then do we raise our children not to be people pleasers and not to be afraid of failure, given that it seems as if unless we are aware and do something about it, we are actually giving off the same energy that we're probably trying to prevent if we're not intentional about it? Sure. I mean, I, I think I, I can only offer some friendly advice there because I I'm a father raising three kids myself. So I, I, I don't want to offer this as conclusive advice because to be clear, I have not raised three kids that are perfect models for me to claim this, but I'm, I'm trying to figure it out myself as I raise uh, my, my three kids. The first is that you have to give your children the permission to say no. A lot of us struggle with this. A lot of us struggle with giving our children the permission to say no. We, we, to the point where we teach our children that saying no is wrong, it's impolite, you shouldn't do it, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you have to give your permission, the, the children the permission to say no. The second is you have to teach them how to say no. How to say no to the friend that's inviting them for a sleepover. How to say no to the cousin that's asking to borrow their favorite pair of sneakers. Uh, you know, how to say no to... The, the older, I, I typically find, especially when it's older people that we struggle, right? How to say no to the, 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 the grandmother, the, the grand aunt who is asking of them something that they shouldn't be doing, teaching your children how to say no, uh, because that's teaching them how to set those boundaries. Um, and, and, and the third would be counseling them through the guilt that they feel when they do say no, because they do feel it. And that they don't have the, the language or the words to verbalize it doesn't mean that they don't feel it. So you want to counsel your children through the guilt of, of, uh, of saying no because they do feel it. That's fascinating around boundaries. You know, it's as, it's as basic as 
serve the food that you can finish and don't push them to finish it because it's the right thing to do. And in fact, even medically, they're saying that's not the right thing to do. So the idea of boundaries starts from very far. Patricia Wamboy Courier has a question here around how have you been able um, to discern true friendships, especially as, as we continue to rise? That is so, so, so tough. The first is this. Somebody gave me this advice many years ago. Then I read it on, on Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power, and it's an effective tool. Manufacture a success and tell it to the person in your life. And then watch the reaction on their face on that first three seconds. Because what happens when you tell them the success or the achievement is their true reaction shows as facial expression. And then their brain kicks in and reminds them that they're playing the character of being your best to a true friend. And then the reaction that you were looking for. Just manufacture, say something like, uh, you know, wow, my, my, my car loan just got, just got approved and I'm buying my dream car and tell them what the car is. Then just watch, just watch the face for the first three seconds because they can't lie. The facial expressions cannot be trained to, to know how to react to an unexpected thing like that over those first three seconds. So that's, that's a very effective way. The second is, again, just listen to the silent voice. The silent voice will tell you. It'll tell you. Um, but you have to learn to listen to it. You have to learn to silence the noise of the world and listen to it. And then the third is to try and plot this person's contribution in your life. Are they a net contributor or a net detractor? Are you happier, healthier, more balanced version of yourself with this person in your life or not? And answer that question truthfully, because a lot of us, even when we know the answer to that question, if we don't like the answer to that question, we, we pretend that the answer is wrong. Answer that question truthfully. There are some people who come into your life and all of a sudden you just gain weight because you're happy. And they, they literally take a weight off your shoulders and you, 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 are, you, you are a shade lighter in your complexion and just smile more and you're, you're present more. And there are some people just of the fact that they are in your life, you're constantly stressed, you're constantly worried, you're constant. That's who they are in your life. They are a constant adding of less to you. Um, and, and knowing that, and then knowing how to remove yourself from that is, is very necessary and takes true grace and true wisdom. You know, when you're talking about net detractors, it's interesting that, um, our grandmothers and grandfathers really got it. My, my late grandmother, may she rest in peace. She would say, when we visit her, you've grown darker. What's going on? Who's in your life? And it was such an interesting question. You've grown darker to your point around there's even a physiological reaction. But it brings me to the question around truth, being truthful. One of the things I believe in is that the one person, we should not lie, but the one person we should really not lie to is ourselves. But it seems mm. paradoxical that that's the person who generally people lie to the most. What do you think mm. about how to develop truthfulness? Very, very difficult. In my, in my limited experience, almost impossible to do by yourself. You need, you need somebody to work with you through that process of figuring out why things 
in your life work out the way they do and helping you figure out what role you play in things manifesting the way that they do, right? So, so you need that. You need the external voice, the external wisdom. And I would even, and I, I would go as far as to say, don't get somebody internal, don't get somebody in the family, get somebody far away from you who is not connected to you in any way, who stands to benefit in no way, whether things work out for or against you, and do it that way. Um, any other way of doing it, uh, you run a material risk of things going wrong for you. That's what I would say to that. We're getting to the tail end, but I have one or two other questions and a couple of things we're going to speak about. And this question is to both of us, but I'm going to ask you first. As entrepreneurs, what's the strategy for working smart, considering that um, both of us have done so much, have achieved a lot? Is there anything like work-life balance? Let me hear your answer first, then I'm going to respond from my perspective. This is from Patricia Korea. Yeah, sure. I, this work-life work balance question comes up so many times. <laughs> um, and, I've heard people, and I've heard people say there's no work-life balance, there's work-life integration. I think for me, the answer to all of these things is just, it's, it's discipline and peace. Be disciplined to do the things you said you would do at the time you said you would do them. And know how to preserve and protect the things that give you peace. So your, your work is a necessary part of you. you. You must do it. You must earn a living. You must provide for your family. And your work is a part of your life, right? So just the way we set up the question work and life balance immediately means that these are not the same things. Your work is a part of your life. And for me, it's just about honoring the things that needs honoring. If it's the time for work, we honor the work. And when it's the time for our lives, we honor that and we honor how we show up for that. The difficulty I have seen most people have is that they want to eat into the rest of their lives portion to feed their work portion because they believe that'll, that'll accelerate the rate at which they grow, develop, get promoted and earn more money. So they are willing to exchange then the other part of their life for this work part of their life. And they turn around and say, there's no work-life balance. No, there is. You just have to be set, you know, disciplined and set boundaries. Um, and, and the second thing I would say, just as a final note, and then I want to hear your thoughts on it, is sometimes you also have to act for the phase you're in um, and the stage you're in. When you're dealing with uh, difficulty, when you're dealing with crises, when you're managing a difficult time, when you're managing a turnaround, you know, when things are not going right, there's a way you need to show up. You can't help that. That's the way you need to show up. Um, and true too, when you are not dealing with difficulty, not dealing and, and, and things are a bit more calmer, there's a way you need to show up there. What's important is to, similar to your phone, you know, when you buy a phone, you go to the settings and you set up and you set when you want your phone to set up your alarm, you set the brightness of your phone. What's important in our lives is our settings. So have the and communicate those settings. So communicate the settings to your family, communicate the settings to your, you know, your loved ones, communicate the settings to your colleagues, communicate what those settings are. These are my boundaries, these are the settings, and you can't leak outside of the system. 
because because the 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 hardware can't work without the settings being configured correctly. Fascinating. I think that it's a life work integration. I think that it's important to know your season. Your season. And you know, when I think about when I was in the 30s, uh, in my first book, I talk about the turbulent and triumphant 30s. It was turbulent. There was so much going on, so many firsts, so many issues that I needed to resolve. But there's also the triumphant around it. So I think recognize your season. And, and in the conference in uh, August, I'll be talking about non-refundable seasons. Because there are seasons that if you don't do what you're meant to do, that is it. It's non-refundable. It's not coming back. There's no way. So for me, recognizing your season. This year, my word for the year is light. To have the light to see the patterns. To have the light to be daring enough to do hard things. And we'll be talking about South Africa in a moment. But the light also means piercing through dark areas, which may be uncomfortable. So I have found uh, something my dad would always say, stress only comes when you disobey what you're meant to be doing, very close to what she said, Lucy. And when people say they are stressed and they don't know how to manage, it comes down to obedience. And you know, you, we think that obedience is about children, but I have found in this year, obedience is about being still, discerning, you know, asking for the gift of discernment, of wisdom, of paying attention to the lessons you can only hear through silence, and then choosing your priorities. And I'm a firm believer that you don't need to have 10 things you need to do. Just choose to do two, three things every day. Plan your day tomorrow, today. And then when you do so, do them with love, you know? Do them with such love that you know that what you're doing is really not just about you, but for, you know, God who has created us. And I find that when then we make a mistake and we do a little bit more or a little bit less or just get all over the place, forgive yourself. Because I think people really carry a lot of the trauma of, I didn't use that season well, I didn't spend that day well, I'm so stretched out. You know, being a mom, one of the things one of my mentors told me is, when you're at work, be a true professional. And when you're at home, even if it's two, three hours, be a stay-at-home mom. And same thing you can say to any dad, be a stay-at-home dad when you're at home with them. And I find that that piece of advice has gained a lot of, um, helped me gain a lot of insight. And so the idea of working smart is not so much as being obedient about what you need in the season. Now we are getting ready for South Africa. And I know, Vusi, you might be asking me, people may be asking, why did we choose to go to South Africa? You know, this is the sixth year that we're doing the Your Next Best Self Conference. And Vusi, in a moment, I want to ask you to share why you said yes and what you think people should be coming to do in South Africa. And your next best self was born out of a journey that I personally went through of struggling to find myself, find my voice, listen to the calling that God has placed in my soul and truly pursue it. And I'm privileged and so grateful that my work and calling are intermingled. And I recognize mm -hmm. your point, Vusi, that not everyone has, uh, has gotten to that point. And it's okay wherever you are in the journey. And so when we thought about South Africa, I thought about my brothers and sisters in South Africa and the trauma they've been through. And the fact that when I look at them, I find that there's an area that maybe they don't believe they can truly break through the invisible chains they may be having around their hearts, their minds, their souls. And you know, the Wakanda thing of being able to break through is not something that, <laughs> it's not something that comes naturally. 
And so when I thought, where is the first place we want to give the gift of helping people become their next best self? That's not to say Kenyans, Nigerians, and everyone else should fly in. But I think the blessings should be the most to the country that's hosting us. And that's mm-hmm. the reason why your next best self, breaking through to the next level is a theme. That's the reason why we chose to go to South Africa. We'll see. What would you tell our audience who are probably wondering, should they swipe the card? Should they take the challenge, take the risk? What would you tell them about joining us in August? So I think um, the one thing really, which is, you know, you and I had our call the other day and I started working on uh, what it is I would be presenting during our time together, briefed my team. And there was this consistent question that kept coming up from people, which is, how do I get myself ready to be the person I need to be? So there's almost this assumption, isn't it, that you you become that person that you need to be, that you show up that way. But the question we don't we don't we seldom ask is how do I prime myself to be that person? What is the process of preparation uh, that readies me to be that person? And so that's what I'm going to be focusing on. I'm going to be focused on focusing on the you that is before the you you want to be. There is you now, there is the you you want to be, and there is this amorphous creature in the middle that very few of us actually talk about. I want you to picture kind of how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, right? It, we know the full form of the caterpillar. We know the full form of the butterfly. It's this incubation, this cocooning that happens where the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and incubates itself so that it can change itself. That, for me, is what I'm fascinated by. I'm fascinated by the space between the points of departure and the points of destination because it's in that space between where things go wrong because it's in that space between where we are self-discovering, often where we, we lack the tools, the skills, the wisdom to migrate where we are and we're figuring things out as we go. So I just want to talk about that space between. How do you prime yourself uh, to be that person? So when we see the full picture of who you have become, what does that preparatory process look like? Wonderful. And, you know, some of you are just saying this was amazing. We loved this. I just want to tell you this was one hour, one hour virtually of a conversation that is riveting. Can you imagine what one and a half days, because we start on Friday, the 18th of August in the evening to allow people to work through the day and join us for a gala dinner conference and a full day with seven amazing speakers of whom Vusi is a keynote. I'll be talking about the wisdom of transitions. It's so interesting, this idea of priming and how you actually convert that. And then looking at Steve Shegger, Marion, Prashanta, Fiwi, Palesa, some of our top speakers who will be sharing insights on how to truly break through to the next level. You know, I just want to say many of you are choosing to wait for the early bird, which ends on 9th July. Be an early bird. Make the decision to honor yourself. You know, this idea, I know many of you, our chances are in that space of in between A and B, even in making this decision, even to show up today. What if you honored yourself and said, I deserve an investment in myself is the biggest investment I will ever make. Details are going to be shared. 
um, right across our platforms, right there on the Facebook Live, their comments around how to actually engage with us. And, and today was really just a taste of what we're going to experience in South Africa on August 18th and 19th. I hope that all of you have gained a lot of insight from this conversation. Vusi, how was it for you as we get to the tail end? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you 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 always challenge me every time we talk. You ask really good and insightful questions, so I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very very much. We are looking forward to do the very very best. Vusi, one last word to the audience. Yes, uh, in particular those who are still considering whether or not to get the ticket, I would say, um, we we have to begin to value knowledge more, um, and we and we and we have to begin to value investing in ourselves more, invest in yourself. Um, I'm excited to be at the conference, not just because of the knowledge sharing that's going to take place, but the people sharing, the contact sharing, the networking that's going to take place as well. So, you know, I'd say, yeah, um, uh, invest, come, let's meet, let's meet each other. Let's meet a few people. Let's exchange some contacts, learn from each other and better each other. Wonderful. Thank you so much. To everyone who's joined our live today, to those who will watch it, I hope that today's conversation has edified you. I hope that you live in this 60 minutes, challenging yourself to truly break through to the next level, to rise from your past, to rise from your fears. And you know, when you look at the picture behind me, which I was very deliberate to sit in front, I'm sure you can see the red booth. And many of us are probably streaming from our phones, right? Don't be the kind who's going to allow themselves to be disrupted by others choose to disrupt yourself so you don't remain there in the museum, but you move forward to advance towards the calling that God has placed in your soul. My name is Dr. Patricia Murugami. Together with Busi Tembekwayo, we have been in conversation. Looking forward to seeing you in August in Santon, at Santon Hotel, 18th and 19th, 2023 of August, and looking forward to you making the decision as a corporate, as an individual, as a family, to truly rise and become your next best self. Thank you very much. And Wakanda, let me sign off. Take care, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> it's been wonderful. Looking forward to it. Very chatting. good. Absolutely. Ciao.